Hello, everyone, and thank you for listening in with us today on our podcast, For the Sake of the Child. Our podcasts are brought to you by the Military Child Education Coalition, whose work is focused on ensuring quality educational opportunities for all military-connected children affected by mobility, family separation, deployments, and transition. Here at the MSEC, we want to ensure that every military child is college, workforce, and life-ready. In our podcast, we will share your stories as we talk to military service members, professionals, parents, and military kids. Please like, share, and subscribe. And we appreciate your comments, questions, and ideas for topics that you would like to hear more about. Welcome, everyone, to our podcast, For the Sake of a Child. My name is Susan Sellers. I'm the spouse of an active duty service member, parent to three military kids, master parent-to-parent educator, and now a podcast host at the Military Child Education Coalition. Joining me today is Deborah Stein and Jocelyn Bissonnet. Ms. Stein is the Network Director for Partnership for America's Children, and she has, been, has more than 30 years of experience in policy analysis and advocacy on behalf of vulnerable children and their families. She's a nationally recognized child advocate and strategic communications expert who is passionate about improving children's lives through better public policy. She's written or co-authored reports for Kids Count, the Coalition on Human Needs, Voices for America's Children, and many other organizations. Jocelyn Bissonette works for the Funders Committee for Civic Participation as the director for the Funders Census Initiative. For nearly a decade, she served as the director of policy and advocacy for the National Association for Federally Impacted Schools, where she represented public school districts that encompassed American Indian reservations and military installations before Congress and the administration. In 2017, she served as president for the Committee for Education Funding, a coalition of 110 member organizations that advocate for increased federal investments across the education continuum. Ladies, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for inviting me. So I'd love to start out by discussing your Count for All Kids campaign. Can you briefly share with our listeners why this campaign was started? Sure. We started this campaign because in 2010, when we did the last decennial census, the Census Bureau missed 2 million young children ages 0 to 4. That's the biggest number of people they missed of any age group, and the next biggest group was the 5 to 9-year-olds. Not only did they miss 1 in 10 young children, but they've been getting steadily worse at counting young children for the last 40 years even as they got better at counting adults. That's very worrisome because it has real implications for how children do. And I do want to add that we disproportionately miss kids of color, so black and Hispanic kids, probably kids of other races and ethnicities too, but we don't have data on it. We also know we miss more children in bigger counties. We're very worried about what that means. And I should add here that we are all very sure that we missed that many kids. That's actually a Census Bureau official number. It is calculated by taking our birth records and our death records, which are very good, subtracting the number of kids who died from the number of kids that were born, and then they add in a factor for immigration. We know we missed 2 million young kids. No one disputes that but only the census data can be used for some very important things in our country. And so it's not good enough that we know how many kids we missed. We have to get the census right. 
Well, Debbie, I have to say that that figure is very surprising and, frankly, a little concerning. Is there any research to explain this undercounting? There is some research. We think we need more. And I'm going to tell you what our research tells us, but I'm also going to say that I'm concerned that many of the reasons young kids are missed are likely to be true of military children. So let me start with the core piece of information around this. Most adults are missed in the census because they don't return the form. Most kids are missed in families that returned the form or were counted, but when they do that, they leave their young child off. Four out of five young children are missed because they were left off the form. We don't know why, but we do know that one in five parents either don't think they're supposed to count their child or don't plan to, or they're not sure if they should. That's from a very recent poll we just did. We also know that there are certain situations where kids are more likely to be missed or left off the form. One is what we call complex household. A complex household is any household aside from a child living with their parent or parents. So if you have a grandparent raising the children or a grandparent, the parents and the child, or another relative raising the child, or if you have two families that are living together, maybe to share the rent burden or because one family is temporarily doesn't have a place to live and they've moved in with family or friends, all of those children are at risk of being missed. Anytime the form is being filled out by someone other than the parent, the child is at risk of being missed. It's particularly worrisome that kids who are living somewhere temporarily are at risk of being missed. When we did some of our research, it was very clear that people think if the person is in their household temporarily, they shouldn't count them, even if that person or that child has no permanent address and won't get counted anywhere else. That's wrong. If someone is in your household most of the time and they don't have a permanent place where they're going to be counted, you're supposed to count them on your census form. Some other things that put kids at risk of being missed is if they're splitting their time between two or more households, they may not get counted in either. Kids of color are obviously at risk of being missed. So are kids who are linguistically isolated. It's not so much about whether the family speaks a different language at home. It's about whether the adults also have competency in English. Fear is a very big factor for certain groups. Historically, this has not really been an immigration problem. Um, as I said, four out of the five households returned the form. They just left the kid off, and almost all young kids are citizens. That's not an immigration problem. But in the current political environment, we also think children in immigrant households may be at risk because of fear. Overcrowded housing is another reason that many households are afraid to put their young children on. If they have more children in there than the landlord knows or allows about, they're often afraid the landlord will learn about it. If it's a grandparent living in age-restricted housing, they may not want the landlord to know they have their grandchild. And then there's this confusion level where people don't know if they're supposed to count their young child. The final reason that kids get missed is that there are a number of factors that we know that make it harder to count adults, and all of those factors tend to be more true about young children. So renters are harder to count, and young children are more likely to be renters than other people. Um, Households headed by young adults are harder to count households. Many young children live in households with young parents. Families that moved recently are harder to count, and more children are likely to be in a household that has moved recently. 
people that live in apartment buildings are harder to count in part because enumerators can't get into the apartment building often and kids are more likely to live in apartment buildings. Low-income people are harder to count. Kids, particularly young children, are more likely to be poor than the general population. In terms of military kids, some of these things that you've just shared with us, how does that factor in for our military families and particularly our military kids? So I'm afraid a number of these things put military kids at risk of being missed. Let me start with military kids living with their parents in the United States. Those kids should be counted at home with their parents. The military moves a lot, so they might have moved recently. They might be renting. A lot of military families are low-income, unfortunately, and a lot of of military families are families of color. All of those reasons mean that even kids living with their parents in military families are at risk of being missed. Then let's talk about kids who are living abroad with their parents. That group is actually not as likely to be missed. I'm not as worried about them because if the parent is stationed abroad and the children are with them, they're not going to get counted by people filling out the form. They're going to get counted by the military administration, and those records should be pretty good because they should have the military dependence. But often one parent is out of the country and the children are staying with a U.S. parent. That whole family might move to be near relatives or they might move back in with relatives. The move puts them more at risk, and if they've moved in with relatives, this complex household situation puts them more at risk of the family member they're living with not putting them on the form. And then sometimes either both parents are deployed or it's a single parent, and the children, when the, the military member is deployed or even just off being trained, maybe living with a guardian or a grandparent or someone else, that's a very high-risk situation for being missed. The best we can tell is that the person who heads that household assumes they're not supposed to count their grandchild or their, you know, the child that they're helping take care of because that's not their permanent home. But in fact, if the parent is off somewhere being trained or being deployed, the only place that child can be counted is with the grandparent or with the family member or with the friend who is taking care of them while the parent is off. So those kids are very much at risk of being missed. There's also a couple of things that we are concerned may be uniquely problems for military families. So I'm sure your listeners know that the word resident can be a challenging word for military families. Um, As I understand it, Military families might have one residence for tax purposes or for voting while they're living somewhere else. Sometimes families um, try and establish residency in one state to establish eligibility for in-state tuition. People are often afraid that that kind of information will get back to the authorities and they'll be accused of tax fraud when they're really just paying their taxes in what they consider their official residence or they won't get the in-state tuition. And and so those families may be more at risk of missing kids. And also just the term residence, they may think of it as an official term. So they may think if they're stationed at a particular military base, they're not supposed to fill out the census there because their official residence is somewhere else. They need to fill out the census where they get the form, where they're living most of the year, not where they vote, not where they provide tax information, not where they're trying to establish college residency. And they need to know that that's safe that the information that they put on the census form will not be shared with any private individual or any government agency. 
the Census Bureau has the strongest protections against revealing individual in identity that I've ever seen. So if a census staffer reveals individual information, they can go to jail for up to five years or pay a fine of up to $250,000, a quarter of a million dollars. And I've asked members, staff at the Bureau, no one knows of anyone who's ever violated that rule. So people should feel confident they can fill out the census for where they're living right now and not worry about it conflicting with their official residence status somewhere else. The other group that that fear might apply to, of course, is that there's a lot of immigrants who are in the military, and there are a lot of people in the military who are married to immigrants. And we are supposed to count everybody in the census, whether they are citizens, whether they are documented immigrants, whether they are undocumented immigrants. That's always been challenging in the current political environment. It is even more challenging. People are afraid. But we hope that people will understand that that data is very protected by law and it won't be revealed. Well, I think that's very reassuring to anyone taking the census that the information that they're they're giving will be held privately and protected in their interests. So you had mentioned earlier um, that four out of five families filling out the the census form would leave off a child. And I'm kind of curious, you know, I I think one thing that comes to mind a lot of times is maybe perhaps um, people think, oh, well, my child's only a baby. I don't really need to include them on the census. Could you share with our listeners how including all children on a census can be beneficial, even if they're not attending school? I'd be delighted to do that. Let me just clarify. It's not that four out of five people leave their child off. It is that when a child is left off four out of five times, it's in a household that returned the census. We miss one in ten young children. That's a really big number, but it's not as big as missing four out of five. So I just wanted to make that clear. So it does matter for children whether they're counted. When we count all of our children, our states and our communities get federal funds that help give children the start they need. We allocate over $800 billion in federal funding each year, and that includes funding for programs like Title I schools for special education, for child care, for Head Start, for children's health insurance, for foster care and adoption services. And I want to make clear that only census data can be used for allocating funding. Even though we do have better data from other sources, the law creates a formula and the formula uses the decennial census data or data that comes from it. The nice thing about them using a formula is that if we improve the count of young children, the money automatically goes up. There's no question of then Congress making a decision and maybe they make a different decision. It's done by formula. So if we improve the count, there will be more money for services for kids. I want to give you a sense of how much it costs us when we miss kids. Because of the number of kids we missed in 2010, states are losing out on over half a billion dollars each year in funding for children's health insurance, Medicaid, foster care, adoption services, and child care funding. That's not all the money we lost. That's money from just five programs where the formula lets us make the calculation. Keep in mind that when we miss kids, we lose that money for a decade, and that's most of their childhood. So that's the biggest reason, I think, for families with young children is we want to make sure that we count the children because even if they're a baby now, that affects funding that they're going to draw on for their childhood. But there are other reasons. School demographers 
need to use decennial census data to plan for how many kids they will have coming into the schools and into the classrooms. The census is the only time when we count absolutely everybody. Everything else that the Census Bureau does is based on a sample, and they figure out how many people to sample from each community based on the decennial census. Well, when you're trying to figure out how many kids you have in a classroom, that sample isn't going to be good enough. And so school demographers actually just use the decennial census and estimates from it, and so that's important for planning for our schools. It's also true that businesses use the decennial census for pretty much the same reason, because the data is better at lower geographic levels. So think about a community that doesn't have a grocery store, and we have a lot of these areas in our country called food deserts, which make it much harder for families to buy fresh fruits and vegetables for their kids and to get healthy food for them. But grocery chains decide where to put new stores based on decennial census data, among other things, that tell them if there's enough people living there to create a market for their services. When we miss a lot of young kids, businesses may not go into those communities and families won't be able to get good food for their families. The other thing that is very important on using the census data is that the decennial census is how every 10 years our federal government, our state government, our counties, our school districts redo, it's called redistricting, their political geographies. So every 10 years, they look at where people have moved, which communities have grown, which communities have shrunk, and they redraw the district lines for members of Congress, for members of your state legislature, for members of your county council, um, in, in areas where the school has districts, electoral districts for those schools. Communities with lots of kids, if they miss lots of kids, are not going to get their fair share of political power, and that means that it's going to be harder for them to get the services that kids need. And finally, policymakers use data to decide what they need to do to help kids, and advocates like me use data to help convince policymakers. And if we don't have good data, kids that get missed in the census are going to get missed out in improving laws and policies that will help them, and they won't get services. Well, Debbie, I think you've given us a lot to think about. And I got to tell you, that's why I love my job. I learn something new with every interview that I do. So my next question, though, is what would we then need to do to encourage our families when it comes to taking the 2020 census? That's a great question. Um, and as Deborah mentioned, the census uh, is critically important. The Constitution actually requires that we count everyone every 10 years. Um, and at the Funder Census Initiative, we sort of think of the importance of the census as the three Ds, the data, the dollars, and the districts. So in terms of the data we collect from the census is essential to ensure sound decision-making for the public, the private, and the nonprofit sectors. For example, the information from the census helps enforce federal laws. It helps businesses decide where to open or close a branch and where communities should place schools, fire stations, or hospitals. In terms of the dollars, we know that census data are used to inform the allocation of more than $800 billion per year in federal resources across a broad range of programs, um, including many programs um, that provide critical services and support for children and their families. 
And in terms of the districts, uh, the census is used to apportion seats of the U.S. House of Representatives, and the data are also informed to distribute political representation and the drawing of districts from state houses to school boards. So if households um, and individuals don't participate in the census, it's really a community loss in so many ways that can last for a decade. So for military families, as well as educators, there are lots of ways that folks can get engaged to help the Census Bureau conduct a fair and accurate count during the 2020 census. Four specific ways that we've identified to engage include pledging to be counted. Um, and that can be done in multiple different forms, but one example is to do that at, the, at censuscounts.org. And I'll talk a little bit more about the census counts in a minute. Another way is to register for a September 10th webinar where Debbie and her team will be digging into more of the re their recent research that they've been conducting about why young children are missed um, and what we can all do collectively to make sure that we have a better and fairer and more accurate count that includes young children next year. We've also aggregated messaging testing that a number of other um, organi national organizations and the Census Bureau has done about what messages really resonate with individuals that will encourage them to uh, respond. Uh, so organizations representing African American, Native American, Arab American, Asian American, and Latinx communities, um, and the work that those organizations are doing to develop resources um, and educate communities about the importance of the census. Um, and those resources can be accessed on our website at funderscommittee.org. A third way that, that families and educators can consider engagement is applying for a census job. Uh, census positions, including enumerator positions, are temporary and they have flexible hours. And the Census Bureau will need to hire more than 400,000 staff to help conduct the census. It's the federal government's largest peacetime activity. And further, the Bureau will need to make sure that they have a broad and diverse pool of applicants to make sure that they can hire a language proficient and culturally competent workforce. And then finally, you can join the Count All Kids campaign that Debbie is running at CountAllKids.org. Debbie's organization is a fabulous resource for those looking to access information and stay engaged on ways to prevent the undercount of young children in the 2020 census. And by participating in this effort, you're actually joining a broader nationwide effort that's led by the Census Counts Campaign at the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights to ensure that we can all work collectively toward a fair and accurate 2020 count that includes everyone. Um, and that campaign includes a really broad section of constituencies and organizations from social justice and advocacy groups to elected officials, businesses, faith-based lead faith leaders, and more. Jocelyn, thank you for those four examples. I think those are, are great ways to start looking into it. Could you go ahead and explain the different ways that are going to be available with the 2020 census in terms of getting counted? Sure, that's a great question. And every decennial census looks a little bit different. The world changes a lot in 10 years. Um, and that's true for the 2020 census as well. So some are referring to the 2020 census as the first digital census, and that's not quite right. We like to say that the 2020 census is the first high-tech census. And what that means is that for the first time, households will actually have three different ways that they can complete 
the form, the questionnaire. Um, and they can do that online. They can do that over the phone. And they can do that through the traditional paper form that most are familiar with from participating in previous censuses. There will also be language assistance. Um, so for those where English may um, not be their first language or they have limited English proficiency, the internet and telephone options will be available in 12 languages plus English. The paper form will be available in English and bilingual English and Spanish. And there will also be instruction guides in uh, 59 languages in addition, in addition to English. So the Census Bureau works uh, really hard to make sure that uh, completion of the census is accessible in a number of different ways. So in terms of what folks can expect in terms of timing, you'll start to see more promotional and educational information about the census as we get closer to the count next year. And then once we get into next year, there are really two main periods that cover the count. Period one is the self-response phase, which runs from mid-March through the end of April. And the count actually begins in the Alaska Native community at the end of January, but a majority of households will receive a letter in the mail mid-March, inviting them to respond online or over the phone. April 1 serves as the 2020 census reference date, meaning households should complete the form by including everyone who's a usual resident on April 1. And don't forget babies. Babies born by April 1 should be counted on census forms, even if they're still in the hospital on April 1. Households that um, haven't completed the form will receive up to five mailings, including a paper questionnaire on the fourth mailing. And period two, what we uh, refer to technically as the non-response follow-up phase, runs from mid-May to the end of July. And this is the part of the Census Bureau's enumeration um, to capture information from households who didn't complete the form during the self-response phase. Census Bureau enumerators will visit households um, to try and to collect this information uh, while the online phone and paper options are still available. And what's notable is how quick of a turnaround this is. It takes many, many years to plan for the census operation. As I mentioned, it's the, it's the federal government's largest peacetime operation. So, and we have to do this complete population count because the state population totals are due by law to the president by December 31st. Well, I have to say that's a big difference from when I remember someone stopping by the house with a clipboard and a pen. I know oftentimes with endeavors this big, as we talked about, it's important to partner with different community resources. And one that comes to mind immediately is our schools. Um, we have a lot of educators that listen to our podcast. Can you briefly share with them any advice on how they can help with the census? Absolutely. So one part of the census Bureau is a program that is now called Statistics in Schools. Some of you may have seen it before. I think in 2010 they called it Census in Schools. They have a program that you can use anytime, any year with materials that are designed to supplement what teachers are doing in the classroom. They go from, I think, kindergarten, yeah, kindergarten all the way through 12th grade um, in five different class areas, so English and math and social studies, and I don't remember the other two, but they're there. And teachers can use those at any time. For the decennial census, on August 31st, they're going to put up a whole new set of materials that are specifically designed for teachers to use in their classroom throughout the year 
that will educate people about the importance of filling out the decennial census, and that include materials that can go home to the parents. That's really important because we know in 2010, one in three parents with a school-aged child saw those materials. That's pretty good reach, we think, and it's important to make sure that your school uses those materials. So a couple of things that you can do working with a school, whether you're a teacher or an administrator or part of the PTA. The first is, as Jocelyn mentioned, the census is actually required by the Constitution, and every school, I believe, is required to do some teaching around Constitution Day, which is September 17th. The Bureau has a whole set of materials that you can use teaching about the census on Constitution Day. So you can go up, you know, you can plan to use them in advance and then go up and pull them down, I think, August 31st, and persuade your school to use them on September 17th as part of their Constitution Day teaching. The second thing, and this is really easy, if you do nothing else, you can do this is that every principal and every superintendent in the country is going to get a mailing from the Census Bureau in early October. And that mailing is going to include maps and it's going to include statistics and school materials. And we want the principals and the superintendents to look at those materials and have little dollar signs in their eyes. They're going to look at those materials if we do our job and say, if my teachers teach with these materials and my students bring those materials home, our community is going to get counted better and we're going to get more money for schools. So we really need people who will go in and meet with their principals and will meet with their superintendents and say, watch out for those materials and use those materials. Don't just think it's some junk mail and throw it away. If you can go in and talk to your principals and your superintendents between now and the end of September, when they get the materials from the Census Bureau, they'll understand that if they incorporate that into their classwork over the year, that will help improve the count in their community. That's a pretty easy lift if you do nothing else. And then in March of 2020, the first week, there is a statistics in school week with a lot of materials that they'll be providing to use then. And again, you can encourage your school to use them. I want to talk for a moment about why schools matter so much. There's really three different reasons. One, of course, is that many kids in school have younger family members at home. And also, as I said, the five to nine-year-olds are the kids that get missed the second most. The second reason is that we know teen moms with babies are at risk of being missed. And a lot of teen moms are in schools, even if they're often alternative schools. The third reason is that in linguistically isolated families, remember those families where, you know, most people are not competent in English, often the person in the household who does speak English well and read English is the child, and they serve as a translator for the other family members. So if the children in those households see the census materials, understand why the census is important. When that census mailings start coming to their families in March and April of 2020, they'll be able to say to their parents, it's okay, I know what this is, it's important, we need to fill it out. So we really encourage you to think about working with the schools. There are two things that Jocelyn mentioned and I just want to go back to. One is the messaging webinar that she and I will be doing on September 10th at 1 o'clock so mark your calendar. And if you sign up for our campaign materials, we are going to be producing 
posters and flyers and probably social media toolkits and probably other materials, maybe a little video, maybe a digital ad. We're still working on the details of this. All of these outreach materials that you can go to our website and download for free and use in your community to tell people that it's important to count their babies and count their kids. So if you go to countallkids.org and sign up for the campaign, the Count All Kids campaign, you will get those materials and you'll get the invitation for the messaging webinar when it's available. I think all of those things are things that should be reasonably doable and that can make a big difference in the lives of your children and military children around the country. Ladies, I want to thank you both so much for joining us today. I can just tell by talking to you both that you're both passionate about this cause, and I have to tell you, I think your organizations are lucky to have you. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank you all to our listeners for joining us today. We will include the website's missions and information about the webinar in the show's notes. And as always, please like, share, and subscribe. We appreciate your comments, questions, and ideas for topics that you'd like to hear more about. Have a great day. I want to thank you again for listening to our podcast, For the Sake of the Child. We would like to invite you to visit our website at www.militarychild.org. Like the MSEC on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Please join us again next time as we share more stories that impact our military-connected kids.